Welcome to episode 10 of the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. I'm your host, Renee Teet, and today we're going to talk to data scientist Trey Causey. Trey started out in the social sciences before making his way into retail analytics and other fun data stuff, like running the New York Times fourth down bot, which he'll tell us all about. He also has some great advice for those wanting to go into data science, especially for those who have never worked outside academia, and for data scientists working with software engineers. After the interview, I'll introduce our next data science learning club activity, related to data scraping and APIs. First, let's hear from Trey. All right, hi Trey. Hey Renee, how's it going? Good. Um, sorry about some of the issues we had getting set up, but I wanted to get started and start by asking you what I ask everybody. Do you see yourself as a data scientist? Uh, I do see myself as a data scientist. Uh, probably not a surprise since I've written a lot about kind of getting started in data science and being on the data science job market. I think that it is a super overloaded term and it means different things to a lot of different people. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of allure to the title and uh, you know, maybe jobs that I wouldn't consider to be a data scientist job are called data scientists, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not data science jobs because I actually don't think we've really settled on uh, a well-defined meaning yet. Um, but all, all the positions that I hold have been called data scientists. Uh, and I kind of work at the intersection of statistics and machine learning in kind of pro solving problems with data and programming. And so I think that kind of combination is what, what makes me a data scientist. Okay, great. So let's start with when you were a kid. So before you went to college and everything, was there anything that indicated that you were going to become a programmer? Do you have any, um, you know, special influences in that area? Were you really good at math as a kid or, or anything that indicated you would have gone this direction with your life? Yeah, I think so. I don't know if it was uh, like, obviously, I don't know which direction the causal arrow points here. Uh, but mm -hmm. Uh, I guess I was four or five when my family got our first computer. It was a Commodore VIC-20, uh, cool. and it had a cassette drive. Uh, so, you know, we load, it just looks like an audio cassette, which might even be foreign to some people. Uh, so pop the cassette in, uh, load the games off of tape or the programs off of tape, hope that it loads on the first try. But as we all know, audio cassettes are kind of a lossy format. Uh, and so sometimes it would, you know, be like, wait an hour, no game. Wait another hour, then you play a very rudimentary game. Wow. Um, it was kind of, yeah, uh, I was kind of into computers most of my life. I had a bunch of Commodore 64s and then I had a bunch of PCs. Um, I was like, I used uh, bulletin board systems a lot when I was a kid and kind of like ran my own bulletin board for a while and kind of that era before the internet. Uh, but when people were starting to talk to each other uh, with computers, I think was kind of where I got my influence. Uh, so I don't know if I ever, I, I guess I was good at math. I don't, I don't know if I would call myself amazing at math or anything. Uh, but I, yeah, I definitely did, did well in math, but I don't think anything pointed me to the idea that I would be like in a field like this necessarily. In fact, I think I kind of backed into this field, uh, differently than a lot of people do. Okay. So did you have any classes early on, um, in school, anything formal with computer programming? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of funny, like in fifth grade, I know, uh, I would do all of the math assignments for the semester like in the first couple of weeks, then I would go down to the office and play around on an Apple IIe that they had. Uh, I went to like a pretty rural elementary school and it was kind of a big deal, they had a computer. Uh, so that was definitely formative. And then in high school, I took AP Computer Science and then went to like local community college where I was still in high school and took a class in C++. Actually, I think it was just C. Uh, so what language C was your AP class in in high school? 
AP class was in Pascal. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's what it was when I attempted to take the test without having taken the course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pascal. I, I, I have no. I assume it's taught in like JavaScript or something. I have no idea what it's taught in now. It's changed um, a few it's times. Okay, so was um, Pascal your first formal class computer language? For sure, yeah. I mean, I taught myself basic before that just because if you had a Commodore, like, you know, you, you turn the, com the computer on, you're basically looking at a basic interpreter. Uh, so, but I was, never took any formal instruction basics. So Pascal was the first formal one. Uh, some C in high school, uh, some C++ in college. Uh, and then actually you kind of went away from computers and started becoming a social scientist. Yeah, so when you initially went to college, how did you choose which college you went to? And were you originally intending to go into a computer field? For sure, yeah. So uh, I went to Virginia Tech, and mm -hmm. uh, I'm from a, a city called Roanoke, which is pretty close to Virginia Tech, and, I, and kind of close to your neck of the woods. Yeah. Um, and uh, so A, it was like, tech was a really good place to go for computer science at the time, and uh, I wanted to work in computers, so it was kind of exciting. It was a state school, so all the things that go with, you know, going to a state school, I was the third of three kids, and, uh, you know, all the kind of reasoning behind where you go to school there. Um, but I really uh, went, like, I, I went to tech a lot as, sorry, so when I say tech, I mean Virginia Tech. Mm -hmm. I went to tech a lot uh, as a kid, like, you know, camps, and, like, they had this thing called, like, Odyssey of the Mind, and I remember, like, going for stuff like that. So I was already familiar with tech. Um, and so for someone growing up in Roanoke, you kind of go to UVA or you go to tech. And so I went to tech because I wanted to do computers. Um, and then I got there and I did a year of computer science. And I was like, you know what? I don't actually love computer science for the sake of computer science necessarily. Um, and at the time, so this was like the mid 90s at the time, being a programmer wasn't like a super exciting job like it is now for a lot of people. I mean, it was like, you know, a good goal was to like go work for IBM writing device drivers. Just like, I, like I'm being obtuse here. You, you kind of know what I mean. It wasn't like a flashy career that, oh, you're a programmer, you know, like, oh, you work in tech. Like it just kind of wasn't the same necessarily. And this was before the dot-com boom had happened. Uh, so I just really didn't enjoy like classes on algorithms and data structures and kind of like stuff like that. It wasn't really my cup of tea. So I decided I want to study something more applied. And luckily I was at a giant state school so I could kind of pick what I wanted to study. Yeah. So did the program that you were in have, um, when you switched over to the social and quantitative side, um, what was that major and did it have yeah. um, a data science type component to it? For sure. Yeah. So I ended up going into psychology. Uh, so not really computer science or data or data science side, but all social sciences use statistics to kind of, you know, answer their questions, right? So uh, for me, it was, I mean, I was using a computer because I was using software like SPSS or whatever to, to solve statistical pro problems, but they weren't, they were just problems about the research questions I was trying to answer. So it ended up being very applied. And so I think I had a little bit of an advantage because I didn't have to learn how to interact with the computer in a programmatic way, which, you know, sounds obtuse when I say like, oh, you don't automatically know how to do that, but of course you don't automatically know how to do that. So I think if you already can think about like, oh, I need the computer to follow my directions to do this a bunch of times for me, uh, that gives you, that kind of makes the computer get out of your way a little bit for your research. So like, it's just becomes second nature that you're gonna, you know, use some software to analyze your questions and do your research. Um, and so that, that side of it came really easy to me. And so as a way it kind of became, I don't know, like, uh, it became like a really automatic way of answering questions for me, and that really appealed to me that I could use these tools that I already had to to answer research questions and to kind of sounds you know lofty, but like discover new things or like you know find find out something that might be true about human nature or something. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned that um, early on you would just 
breeze through your math problems and then also you yeah. started programming early so you're definitely one of you know those people that started with tech early in life right. um, but for the parts what didn't come easy to you and what did you do to overcome that for sure yeah I think uh, that's a really good question so I think that you know when you say it like that you're someone who like math came easy to you and you programmed early like when you say it like that it is actually true that I was one of those people but I don't feel like I was one of those people necessarily like once I started hitting advanced math I mean, like calculus was hard for me. It wasn't like, it was easy. I mean, I did fine in it, but it's not like, you know, I just sat down in calculus and was like, oh, it all clicks, it makes sense. And of course this is the way it is, you know. I wasn't like some savant that just automatically grokked how calculus worked or, you know, like <laughs> whatever. So that, I think like we do a disservice sometimes by making people think they have to be like novices. I mean, sorry, like amazing when they're young and it's just like a gift that you have. Like, I just like, I don't necessarily think that's the case. So what came, what was difficult for me? I think when I first started studying statistics, it was like the calculation parts of statistics are not challenging. Like it's just algebra usually for the most part, unless you're doing, you know, pure like mathematical statistics and you're doing lots of proofs or whatever. But like for answering social science questions, you're never doing much more than algebra. But thinking like statistically, thinking probabilistically was something that was very difficult to make natural. Like it makes sense when you, when you read textbooks about how to do it, it all makes sense. But like, making it second nature, I think is very difficult to do. And something I'm still trying to do like throughout my career, right? Like I think it's, it's a really difficult skill. Uh, and so that, that was hard for me. I think programming is also difficult for me because I stopped kind of being a programmer for a long time. And I just, you know, was someone who wrote code to, you know, solve problems, but I wasn't worried about other people reading my code or like if that code looked or was performant or anything like that. Cause it was usually like a one-off thing. And you know, if it's, if it took all night to run, like, I don't care. Like, it's only me that's relying on the answers. I'll, I'll check tomorrow or whatever. So making that transition of starting right to write more complicated code later in my life has been certainly more difficult. Okay, so what did you do after undergrad and how did you, um, you know, become a data scientist from that point? What was your path like from there? Yeah, uh, so I kind of took some time off here and there, uh, did some odd jobs, um, and I ended up going to grad school at the College of William & Mary. Um, which is also in your neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. um, so I got a master's in psychology there and with, the, with an eye on doing a PhD. Uh, while I was there, I discovered like, I didn't want to do individual-based social science as much. I like studying kind of groups of people and how institutions form and kind of how norms and institutions shape societies. So I applied to sociology PhD programs and I ended up going to the University of Washington uh, out here in Seattle uh, where I was working on a PhD. And so while I was there, uh, kind of really doubled or tripled down on methodological training. So UW, uh, UW is what we call University of Washington out here. UW is kind of known for, or at the time was, I don't know if they still are, known for being very methodologically advanced, and they still are, that was unfair of me. Um, but our particular program got like very rigorous training, especially for a sociology program, where you're known for being like a really quantitative program. Um, when you do a PhD, you often have like, you, you know, in addition to your dissertation and everything, you have what are called your major and minor qualifying exams. And like, you have to pick a topic to write your exams on. Well, we could actually do one of our exams on just methods. So like my minor qualifying exam was like methods coursework. So like game theory, Bayesian statistics, stuff like that. Um, and as I was kind of working uh, on my dissertation, trying to figure out what I want to write uh, my dissertation about and everything, this kind of machine learning thing starts becoming very popular. And so I'm kind of reading about it. And like, you know what, a lot of these questions are actually just statistical questions posed a different way uh, or very similar to questions I already know how to answer. 
And so for me, I started kind of looking more at machine learning, and I was there's this kind of interesting debate going on in the social sciences about whether prediction or explanation is the goal of social science work, and you know, like prediction is like of course the primary goal of machine learning um and it, like explanation is what social scientists say they want to do they're like well i don't know i'm not going to predict a revolution but i would do want to explain why this revolution happened or something like that but there's this very like lofty debate about like are you really explaining something if you can't predict another one or are you just kind of overfitting then to your explanation um yeah so i started kind of getting really involved in this uh i was learning arabic at the time um so i got kind of interested in doing arabic natural language processing which was kind of an underserved area at the time uh, so just started kind of pushing forward on that, uh, doing a lot of like interdisciplinary work, which as anyone who was in grad school can tell you is both like an edge that you can give yourself. And it's also like a deep, deep rabbit hole you can fall down because all of a sudden, like you don't just have your field that you need to be an expert in. You have like three or four fields that you need to be an expert in. And that's like, sounds kind of like a data science. Yeah. <laughs> data science. <laughs> so, so you had mentioned earlier that you had some, um, the, the things that were difficult for you. One of the things was, um, thinking probabilistically. So what's yeah. an example of a project that you did in college or um, in your PhD program that helped you see a social um, concept in a probabilistic way? That is a really, really good question. So as part of, I don't even know if it's project I did, but it's certainly, so as part of my coursework, um, I took a class on basically social institutions. And social institutions are like, Everybody has different definitions for them. Like in a shorthand, you can think of them as rules and roles. So like the rules for the way people behave and the roles that people occupy. Um, and so thinking about how institutions form is actually this really super interesting sociological question. Like why does capitalism happen? Or like uh, why is it the case that some places have wars a lot? Or why does democracy happen in some places and not in other places? So these like have these very lofty names, but like fundamentally it might also be like, why do some people drive on the right-hand side of the road versus the left-hand side of the road, right? So I got really interested in thinking about like both the intersection of like how these things happen, historical explanations for them, a little bit of complexity theory, like, you know, for instance, like driving on which side of the road you drive on, it's kind of like a historical accident. Either side, it's as good as the other. And it's kind of like, you know, if you, if you started the whole game over again and ran it again, it might come out a different way. Uh, so thinking about that and kind of learning about how institutions form really got me thinking about like, how do we know why things happen? And that was kind of when I started to really understand like kind of power of probabilistic thinking, right? And like, it also made me feel kind of humbled in some ways because sometimes like we just don't know because it's happened so few times that like we can argue about it a lot. But like, you know, for instance, like why did the Russian revolution happen? Like we've got lots of different answers, but there's never been a revolution just like that one. So, and we can't rerun history. I mean, so like thinking about the limits of what you can and can't know was, was a, a, a good skill but a very challenging one to acquire in grad school. And what does the data look like when you're asking problems like that? Great question. Uh, so you could just have like a little table that says, you know, country, revolution, yes or no, you know, and a bunch of different in independent variables as we would call them as their science features and machine learning, um, and then try and fit a model to that. But oftentimes, like, there have only been a few like so-called great revolutions. So a lot of times people end up doing either like case studies on those things, or what you try and do is you try and reduce the level of analysis to something you have more data on. So you're like, well, do I have county level data or do whatever the kind of, you know, administrative unit is or something like that? Or do I have economic data from cities that I could like, you know, deaggregate countries in the cities? And so it's always kind of this goal to increase your sample size by going kind of a level deeper. Uh, there's this book that most social science grad students read. It's called by its initials KKV. It's called Designing Social Inquiry. 
And that's like one of their prime pieces of advice. Like if you don't have enough samples, then like go back and try and figure out if you can go a level deeper and make more samples, you know, until you get to the individual level or something like that. Uh, so you always just have to be kind of creative. And that's actually one nice thing about working in industry is like we always have enough data. It's never a question of like having too small of a sample. It's usually that we can detect things that are meaningless because they're very small because we have very large samples. So interesting, interesting change over the, over the years in that aspect. So you mentioned you were doing some natural language processing work with Arabic. Had you already done it in English first? And is that um, where you were focusing on for your dissertation? Uh, stupidly, no. Uh, I decided to kind of pick it all up at the same time. Uh, I mean, like, obviously, all the reading I was doing was, was mostly on English corpora. But uh, I was studying Arabic simultaneously. So I was like, oh, I bet I can, you know, make these two things meet in the middle. Uh, as it turns out, like, Arabic's a really tricky language. Uh, I sounds like stupid when I say that, but like, so, but for like NLP reasons, it's a very tricky language because it has like infixes as well as prefixes and suffixes. And like the entire language has like a three or four letter root system for every word. And then the, the word takes on different shapes depending on like meaning infixes, suffixes, prefixes, depending on the meaning of the word. But like short vowels are not written sometimes. So words can look identical on paper that have opposite meanings and kind of like, some super hard NLP type problems uh, that so you really got proceed. into linguistics for the study too. <laughs> totally, yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, like I'm learning about like morphology, and you know, it's like, like I said, as a grad student, it's kind of dangerous. So like, oh, good, now I need to become an expert in this. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of the NLP work at the time too was being done by like computational linguists, so they were really focused on the kind of linguistic side of things. So trying to read that literature while you know only only soaking up enough enough knowledge that I needed to do my work rather than like having a parser and their writing was I don't know being able to read lots of stuff you don't understand is something that you get good at in grad school I feel like I guess that's that's a good question too that comes up with data science is that there's so much to learn and like you said with interdisciplinary fields you can really go down a rabbit hole so how do you narrow that in to to focus it and like complete a project totally it's a great question uh, I think part of it is being okay with not understanding everything and part of it comes with like i think you're gonna you're gonna be doing yourself a disservice if you set out to learn all the different topics that people say you need to learn because you know you'll ask 10 people and you'll get 12 answers and so like trying to figure out like well what is the essential thing i need to learn so i think that's why so many people recommend starting out with a project first because then you're like well what, what would i need to know if i learn to answer x and what do I need to know if I need to answer one? You may not know that yet, but like you kind of work until you hit a stopping point, then you learn a new thing. I mean, I do have, I guess, stronger opinions on this than some people because like, I do think you do fundamentally need to know statistics and, you know, some programming to work in data science. Like, I think that is just actually like the bare minimum. Like, I know some people might disagree with that, but like, I just feel that way. And Sorry. Uh, in fact, and I think you can, and if you just knew machine learning, you might be okay or fine too. But like knowing one of the two, I think is kind of, you know, what defines this as a field. Otherwise we're just kind of throwing things together and saying like, Hey, it's data science. Uh, but you know, within statistics and machine learning, there's so much you could possibly learn. Right. So, I mean, one thing you can do is you can kind of look at courses that teach these individual topics and like, look at a bunch of syllabi, and say like, what is the ordering of the topics that all these courses have? And like, you can kind of then crowdsource your own knowledge about saying like, well, they all cover linear regression in the first you know, unit. Like, why is that? Like, and then they go to logistic regression or classification. Like, why is that? So like, you can kind of pick up on, these seem to be fundamental building blocks, right? And then you see that there are advanced courses that are offered on specific topics and you realize that might be something you wanna learn later, but maybe isn't something you need to master right now. 
right? Uh, I mean, I think we're entering like a golden age where like there are lots of books saying like, here's a brief overview of lots of different things, but uh, I don't know that all those books are great. So you need a foundation in statistics and a foundation in programming and machine learning. Um, and then everything else, as a lot of data scientists say, is just in time learning. You know, you're just picking yeah, it up as you go along. So um, what did you end up doing for your dissertation? Was it natural language processing? Yeah, uh, so I'm a full disclosure what's called ABD, which means I never completed my dissertation uh, because I decided to jump to jump ship to industry instead. Uh, but so the dissertation was, yeah, large scale kind of topic modeling of Arabic newspapers during the Arab Spring. Um, yeah. So there was this really interesting kind of thing going on uh, while the Arab Spring was happening in that newspapers that were tr traditionally controlled by the state uh, in various countries in the Middle East uh, would kind of like have these openings and closings of like the freedom to say more or less about what was going on uh, and kind of the way they wrote about things. So I thought it'd be interesting to try and kind of model how that happened and see what we could learn by kind of ingesting a lot of newspapers and modeling that over time. Inconclusive, but a fun project and like learned a lot about managing large amounts of data and kind of like, you know, collecting data. So I had to scrape all the data, then I had to process all the data, then I had to model the data, then I had to write up my results and visualize. And like, if you've ever worked with topic models before, like it's not the easiest thing to visualize your results. You just get like lots of lists of words and you have to come up with like interesting ways to do it. I think the best ways that I've seen to do it have been interactive, but you know, that doesn't really work for like a printed paper. So yeah, uh, that's what I ended up working on. So did you see that as a field you wanted to go into specifically after uh, grad school or were you ready to try something new? I think I was ready to try something new. So I kind of developed a reputation in grad school for being what's known as the methodological co-author. Uh, and so, you know, when people had an idea they wanted to write about, they would ask me to work with them on that paper to like do the methods and do the stats and whatever. And I think some people think that's lower status because you're like the workhorse and they have the big creative idea and whatever. But I actually found that I enjoyed that part of it a lot more. And A, like I almost always had to learn new methods, answer questions, because the data were always interesting new ways. B, like I was able to move on from the project when it was over. Uh, and so like I didn't have, like it didn't go on for years and years because this is now my research program or, or whatever. And C, like I wasn't as invested, I think, in the ideas. And so, you know, ideas are like academics' children and like they want them to succeed and they're very special to them because they spend a lot of time with them. And, and I think that aspect of it a lot of times for me wasn't, didn't resonate very well with me. And I just like kind of solving problems and moving on. And so industry looked like a way that I could do that. Yeah, I was gonna say that that sounds like a academia concept that it's the people that are experts in the area that are, you know, higher up on the totem pole, even though they, they super rely on people that are the totally jack of get the work done, yeah. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong, like, you know, the, I worked with very smart people as well, and like very, like had great mentorship, but like at the end of the day, I was not, and a big ideas person. And I'm like totally fine to admit that. <laughs> so what happened when you um, switched to industry? You know, what was that experience like of applying for jobs and, and what, what did you want to do at that point? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do, right? Like I knew that there was like, there were starting to be jobs out there for people like me that knew how to do these things. Um, and I didn't, I kind of applied broadly and kind of looked at stuff that looked interesting kind of knew enough that uh, I knew the kind of like keywords that I would look for in our, in like job listings and kind of looked for companies that were already had maybe evidence that they were doing stuff in this area. Uh, I was going to be pretty particular because I didn't want to kind of, you know, I was like, I was fine in academia. I didn't want to leave a good thing for something uncertain necessarily. 
so I kind of applied broadly, uh, did a lot of different, did a lot of like phone interviews, a lot of different interviews just to kind of hear people talk about what they wanted and kind of also practice like my way of talking about myself. So I find that a lot of academics are not good at talking about themselves in a way that resonates with people that are not academics. Um, yeah, so and what so, advice do you have in that area? Yeah, that's great. Um, and you can tell I'm still guilty of it. I would say like cut yourself shorter. Um, I would say like be brief, be brief, be brief. Uh, I don't mean short. I mean like get to the main idea quickly, right? We don't need the setup of the, you know, the shoulders of the, we don't need the giants whose shoulders are standing on backstory as well. Uh, so you know, it's, I talk to grad students. I'm, I'm now like the person from my former grad school that like uh, grad students email like, I'm thinking about going to an industry. Can we have coffee and talk about what that's like? You know, and I'll tell them, I'm like, all right, well, tell me how you're introducing yourself to people and how you talk about your research. And like, and they take a deep breath and then they launch into like, you know, here's some of my dissertations about and it's important for these reasons. I'm like, okay, but what, is, what are you doing? Like, what are you working on? Uh, how are you doing it? You know, what are the methods that you're using? Like, what are the problems of the data that you solve? Like, I'm sure that the work you're doing is very important and like, you know, enriching human society and whatever, but like, that's not what people want to know necessarily in industry. They want to know like how you were able to get things done and how you got there. Uh, and also like being able to understand when the person you're talking to is not interested in what you're talking about is a valuable skill that a lot of academics don't have. And I find that like, you know, I'll be still here lecturing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, okay, well, this has been great. Um, let's wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it's, 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 a, it's an unfair stereotype, but I just encounter it a lot. Uh, you know, people have been in school their whole lives. They've never had to kind of sell themselves uh, in like a job interview situation. They've always just gotten what they've gotten because they've been smart and they've applied for things. And, and the application process in academia is like you write essays and you send it off in the mail. And like, it's not at all like, you know, meeting someone and you have half an hour to make your case for, you know, why you should be there. I mean, med school and grad school are, are, are a little different and law school are a little different, but for the most part, like most academics don't have to interview for their positions until they actually become academic professors, whatever. And even then it's like, it's an entire day thing with other academics. So it's just very different style. So yeah, edit yourself, uh, talk about your methods rather than about the topic of your research. I mean, if, if your topic is interesting, spend some time talking about it, but don't make it, it's no longer the centerpiece of what you're pitching to people uh, and try and focus on the concrete skills that you can bring with you. I think a lot of academics are like, well, I'm a really good critical thinker and uh, I'm smart, and I'm like, yeah, so is everyone else applying for this job, or at least they're gonna say they are, so you're not offering any signal there, right? Like, so show me, like, give me examples of times when like your critical thinking has helped, or like you've been able to manage a project, or whatever. Uh, so I think focusing on those transferable skills is, is something that academics are, they have a lot of them, but they just don't know how to talk about them. That sounds like really good advice. So nice. what was your first job in industry, and how did that go? Yeah, so I joined a company called Zuloli, uh, which people with kids will probably know about. Uh, some pe other people also know about it. People with kids generally know about Zuloli because they sell a lot of kids' clothing. And uh, they were kind of like a daily deals website. Well, they still are. Uh, and so I worked uh, for them doing recommendation systems work. Uh, so I kind of started off doing just general data kind of work. Like, can you predict churn? Can you predict, like, if people are going to buy things? The kind of standard, like, boilerplate data science jobs you often hear about. Uh, and then I moved into more recommendation system work. So uh, what a lot of people don't know necessarily is that like when you log into Zulily, you see all these things that are on sale for today only, uh, but that ordering is like specific for you. It's not, it's not a recommendation system like Netflix where it's saying like, you may also like this because of this, uh, but it's an implicit recommendation system that everybody's ordering has the potential to be different based on their interests and their past behavior and things like that. So the nice thing about that was uh, I learned a lot about that uh, 
I didn't know anything about recommendation systems going into that job, uh, but kind of recommendations are recommendation systems are just kind of applied linear algebra. So you can, once you understand how they work and what they're doing, uh, you can kind of go pretty far, I feel like. Uh, so that was definitely something that I, previous education had helped me prepare for. Um, so how did you I make the transition within out. the company from going in as, you know, a standard churn analysis type of data scientist and transitioning to recommender systems, even though you hadn't done it before? Like, how did that work within the company? Did they just default to you or did you have to prove that you could do this stuff? That's a good question. I don't actually know. It, it feels like it happened kind of organically. Uh, mm -hmm. I, had a, I had a really excellent manager the entire time I was there. Um, and that has a lot to do with this. His name is Mike Erickhart. He was a really fantastic manager and in the, in the way that good managers are like interested in both like kind of promoting my personal growth as well as kind of like challenging me to like produce more, you know, be better than I was. So an excellent motivator, but like a really nice guy. Um, and we actually switched while I was there. So this might have something to do with it. Actually, uh, we switched from being within the marketing org to within the engineering org. Uh, and so I was then working with the engineers who were building, who were implementing the recommendation systems at scale. Uh, and so I think it was just a natural transition that I would start working on that. Um, but yeah, I don't actually remember exactly how that went down. And I like the nice thing is I ended up kind of moving in. I had, I had a team of two people reporting to me uh, and uh, we kind of did a lot of different stuff for the company. And I, it was pretty cool. We were like our own self-contained little unit within the company. And uh we kind of had free reign to kind of work on what we wanted to work on, which was really nice. Now, online, um, on Twitter, you're kind of known as a sports analytics guy. So did that happen at the same time as all this? Have, were you doing that on the side for fun, or is that a job that you did? Yeah, good question. Uh, so it happened kind of simultaneously. So as I was in grad school kind of applying for other jobs, uh, I was interested in sports analytics, and I kind of dabbled in it as a hobby before, but I was like, you know what, maybe I'll kind of – you know, test the waters in sports. Um, so basically through some kind of online connections, people that I knew, I ended up getting an interview with a football team uh, in the NFL and went through the whole interview process and kind of ended up getting to the point where I was like, hey, like this could be a good job, uh, but I don't really want to relocate. I really like living in Seattle and I'm not sure that uh, this is going to be like, the, I'm not sure if I want to do this full time as a career because it's kind of lower paid and it's, you know, the churn rate of people working in sports is pretty high. Uh, the hours are really long. The, you know, there's a lot of travel. Uh, if let's say the general manager and the coach were to get fired or something like that. And the new general manager doesn't like using statistics, like you're also going to be fired, you know, and then you have 31 other places you could possibly work in the country uh, or something along those lines. So it didn't seem like the most secure uh, path for her career security at that point or for career success at that point. Uh, so what we did was we kind of decided, hey, we really liked working together. I went down there for a while and we decided to kind of continue on a consulting basis. So uh, that has been a kind of continuing relationship. And like in the meantime, I've kind of done work for soccer teams, um, kind of talked to basketball people. Uh, I haven't done any actual work in basketball people, but I kind of have uh, good connections in the basketball community where we kind of bounce ideas off each other about how they're approaching things. And so as it turns out, like sports analytics is kind of a small, tight knit community for the most part. Uh, and we kind of like, I know, I know a lot of people across a lot of sports as a result, which is kind of cool. And what specific type of tools are you using for that? Uh, yeah, great question. Uh, so whatever needs to happen. So for instance, the NFL maintains a kind of central, uh, 
database system that everybody that is on a team can access with, with the right credentials for like the official like uh, statistics for players and things like that. So this would be like the database that, you know, agents would access to like, say like, here's how this player did last year. Um, and it's like, everybody's agreed upon source of truth for what happened. And then there are all these additional like databases and, and data sources that you can buy from people uh, and teams collect their own. And so there's all that. And then, so I, I kind of worked in R and in Python for that, but it's like also writing C um, yeah, pretty much standard toolkit for that. And then I guess I should say, like, out of all this too, like last year I started uh, working on a project for the New York Times called the Fourth Downbot, um, which yeah, is I think that's really cool. So was that your idea, or did they come to you to build that? So the the Fourth Downbot actually already existed before me uh, okay. with a guy named Brian Burke. So he ran this website called Advanced NFL Stats that then became Advanced Football Analytics because of trademark issues. Uh, and he was, he did it for the first two years and then ESPN hired him last year and acquired all of his IP. So he's like, Hey, uh, I can't do this anymore. A, because I work for a competitor and B because, uh, you know, all my IP now belongs to ESPN. So I had been in touch with the people at the times before. Uh, so there's these two guys that work at the upshot, Kevin Quayley, who's now a deputy editor of the upshot and Josh Katz, uh, who's a graphics editor there. And the upshot is a sports them. blog. I'm sorry. The upshot, that's a sports blog. No, it's there. Like, uh, it's the Times like data journalism site. Uh, okay. So it's, uh, it would be like their version of Five Thirty Eight or uh, you know any of those other sites like that. So actually, the upshot was created. Uh, if you'll think back to the last election, uh, Nate Silver was still at New York Times, and Five Thirty Eight was actually a project at the New York Times, and he kind of uh, famously and publicly left uh, the Times and to start his own thing, Five Thirty Eight. And this was kind of as like data journalism was starting to become a thing, and so the Times started their own version of that uh and yeah they have uh, i would say if you're like interested in politics at all right now they have the best visualizations bar none of like what's going on in elections like they have live returns on on all the primaries and they actually plot the uncertainty for like what they think their final projection is going to be and in real time the uncertainty updates saying like you know we think that ted cruz is six points ahead but only seven percent people are uh, only seven percent of precincts are reporting and here's how much uncertainty we think is around that estimate it's really cool um really nice stuff so I had been in touch with them before and right after Brian left, uh, Kevin emailed me, asked if I would be interested in rebuilding it from scratch since they couldn't use Brian's model anymore. Uh, and we just took it from there. And I think, I think it went pretty well. It was, it, it was a fun project. Um, I got well, to watch. for people that don't know what it is, explain to us oh, what the fourth down bot does. For sure. So in American football, they, you have uh, what are called four downs or four tenths to advance the ball 10 yards. And if you advance the ball 10 yards, you either get another set of downs or you have to get, give the ball to the other team. And so uh, basically on the fourth down, you have to assess your chances. They're like, what are the problem? What's the chances that I'm going to be able to successfully finish the rest of these 10 yards. Uh, and that might be by a touchdown, by punting, you know, by running or passing the ball, or you might say, Hey, there's not a very good probability of me being able to do this. So I'm going to punt the ball away to, to give worse field position to my opponent, or I'm going to try and attempt a field goal, which is kicking the ball through the goalpost for three points. Uh, so every time there's a fourth down, um, the, the league, the National Football League is kind of notoriously conservative uh, in their decision making. So like there's a lot of research that says that um, if you want to maximize your chances of winning, you need to go for it on fourth down much more often than you do. Uh, but it's kind of an interesting kind of behavioral economics exercise and risk aversion. Uh, coaches are extremely risk averse. And so they end up taking the quote unquote safe play by like punting the ball away or attempting a field goal. So uh, we built this model that every time there's a fourth down, uh, in any game being played in the NFL on any Sunday, Monday, or Thursday, um, it 
calculates the probability A that you're going to be able to successfully get a first down from there or score. Uh, if you were to attempt a field goal, what's the probability that you would make it or miss it? And if you were to punt it, what's, where is the ball likely to be recovered by the other team? And it kind of weights all those things and then says, here's what the optimal decision is uh, based on these three, these different counterfactual outcomes uh, and recommends based on all the stats of like the current team and the team, the opposing team and um, right. how up to date are the stats that it's looking at? Good question. So it's built on about 10 years of data, about the past 10 years of data. It does not include... It's not trained, so the model is not made with data from this year, uh, but in, it does include the Vegas line as one of the variables in the model. And so the Vegas line is like basically how much people, what, what people think that the score difference is going to be at the end of the game, right? And so uh, if it's in, like you can figure out who the favorite is and by how much they're favored. And so it uses that as kind of saying like, here's our best guess at how good each team is. As it turns out, like by far one of the most powerful variables in the model in, in predicting like which team is the better team, right? So like you can think about it like as a thought experiment, like when a game kicks off and at the very beginning of the game, is it true that both teams have a 50-50 chance of winning the game? Like, no. And we can actually kind of, you know, handicap the better team saying like, they actually probably have like a 67% chance of winning the game because they're favored by a touchdown. So before the ball is even snapped, we know that like they are much more likely to win the game. So that, And those that lines is, are kind of a crowdsourced piece of data, right? Exactly, yeah. You know, people love to talk about Vegas as being this like this thing that sets – you know, odds for, for gambling problems. But what it actually is, is it's lots and lots of people sharing their beliefs about what's likely to, to happen in a centralized way, in a way that's a consequence of them because they're placing money. I'm not advocating gambling here. I'm just saying it's a very efficient way of aggregating information that, you know, we know like people are more likely to be honest when there's money on the line and like when it's anonymous. And so this is kind of like a way of like really aggregating that uh, information together. It's super efficient, um, like super, it's very, very hard to beat the Vegas line. Um, so, cause picking who's going to win or lose a game is very easy to do, but picking how much they'll win or lose the game by is very difficult to do, uh, more than 50% of the time. So, yeah. So it uses that as part of his decision-making. And the cool thing about it is it tweets out before the play happens here's what we would do. So it's very fast. And it says, here's what you should do. And then the play happens. And if it, the bot disagrees, quote unquote, with what happened, it'll tweet out why it disagrees. And then there's a page on the times that has why it made the decision it did. It has a graph showing like where it would have gone for it, where it would have punted, where it would have attempted a field goal. And it also tells you like what coaches typically do in this situation, which I think is like one of my favorite features to see like, you know, the boss says, it's a no-brainer. You should have gone for it here. And then it'll say, like, 67% of coaches punted in this situation, you know? And so seeing those two things together, like, really kind of brings it home for how, like, how little, uh, you know, they're optimizing for on fourth down. Has there been any evidence of the coaches or the staff looking at the fourth down bot to see what to do? <laughs> so, uh Depends on what you mean. So it is actually against the rules to use computers in the booth of the game or on the okay. sidelines. So, and it's illegal or it's against the rules to communicate with people outside of the team uh, to get information like that. However, uh, I have talked to people at teams who are well aware of the bot and have like gone through and looked at what the bot has said after game. So I definitely know there's an audience for it in the league. Uh, and it has a mixed reputation. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. So how yeah. do you think, um, how has it done in terms of being um, predictive of what will happen? Good question. Uh, you know, that's actually the, I think that's the most common question people ask, like, well, how often is it right? The tricky part about that, and this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, is like, well, what does it mean to be right, right? So mm -hmm. like if it says you should have gone for it, that there's an 80% chance you're going to succeed and you fail, well, there was still a 20% chance that, 
you weren't going to succeed, even if the bot was perfectly right, right? So, like, that's one of the difficult things about thinking probabilistically is like, well, in the, it just means in the long run, like four out of five times, you would have been successful at that. Um, and it's, it's tricky to say, it's, it shouldn't be predictive necessarily because the entire premise of the model is that coaches are being too risk averse. So if it's predictive, then we would say that like, they're doing exactly the right thing potentially, right? So it would be interesting to see over the course of multiple years if, if what coaches called came more in line with what the bot was calling though. I don't think we've seen any evidence of that. Yeah, and what other applications are there for a bot like that? You know, could you say, um, here's what you should do in XYZ scenario, you know, if the data yeah. supports it, you know, how can it be transferred? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Well, within sports, I think there are lots of interesting applications. Like one of the things I always thought would be interesting was uh, when to call a timeout. Uh, so you only get three timeouts per half in football. And some coaches, like famous example is Andy Reid, who's the, uh, the coach of the Chiefs, used to be the coach of the Eagles, is like really, really bad at using timeouts. Uh, <laughs> you know, there are like natural points in the game, like the two-minute warning when the clock will stop automatically. And like, so you have a free timeout kind of built in there. And like, he's just, he's super, super bad at using timeouts. And I always thought it'd be kind of funny to uh, figure out like what the value of a timeout is at like, any given point in the game. And then, so oftentimes if you don't use a timeout, your other alternative is taking a delay of game penalty before not running a play in time. And so I'd love to see like, you should just let the clock wind down, give up five yards, or you should use a timeout here. Like, I'd really like to find out like when the optimal times to use timeouts are. Cause I feel like everybody has their folk intuition of, oh, I can't believe you used a timeout there, you know, whatever. And I don't think that we really use the data at all to figure out if that's true or not. I mean, outside of sports, I think there are lots of applications uh, like in investing and things like that. But I think you need to, one of the things we need to be careful about as data scientists too, is realizing that like when we build bots and models like that uh, and they change people's behavior potentially, then the models become less predictive and less useful. And so they degrade over time. And maybe that's okay because you've gotten the outcome you wanted by getting people to change their behavior. But making sure you kind of revisit is, is important. Uh, yeah, you almost have to run it for a while in isolation without public information to see how it compares. Totally. Totally. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a great idea. So what are you doing now? So now uh, I work for a very interesting startup called Chef Steps. Um, so I am uh, someone who is, really enjoys food and I'm really into food, so it's kind of a great fit for me. Um, we are a company that was started by these by two guys, uh, or three guys, two, two of which are still the company. Uh, they worked on a project that was kind of famous a few years ago uh, on a book called Modernist Cuisine, which was this amazing, like huge cookbook that's like six volumes and I think it costs like $1,000 or something. Uh, and it was like, basically, you know, it would start with a question like, what is meat? <laughs> and like, not in like a, like, you know, oh, this is a steak kind of way, in a way of like, what is hemoglobin and what is protein? And like, how are those things? What are the enzymes in the body that break those things down? And like, why do we cook it? And, you know, so, and they had this like amazingly high budget, like photography studio. And like, like if we could make on an unlimited budget, the best burger that anyone has ever made in the entire history of the world. It means like grinding your own meat by like meat we selected, whatever, right? Like, uh, so they kind of did that, became pretty famous for it. They've now started Chef Steps, uh, which is where I work. So we make tools for people to become better cooks. So that includes like online video content. We make hardware. We make an immersion circulator for a technique of cooking called sous vide. Um, we make apps uh, kind of across the board. So it's like a tech company meets uh, food, which is really like great. It's right up my alley. So for them, I'm like the first data scientist. So it's a very different job than working at a big company. And so it's like, you know, first step when you get there is figuring out like where the data is. Can you get access to it? What does it look like? Uh, is it meaningful in any way? Like this is the thing, like you may have had, the company's been around for three years, three and a half years. 
Uh, and you know, there were software engineers that were collecting data, but they don't necessarily analyze the data. So maybe they're not collecting the things that you would want to collect or worrying about like how they're collected or how they're stored or so, you know, I think coming in to a startup is a very interesting because you have to be kind of like have decent engineering chops and be willing to like write the code to get your data from here to here. And, you know, you don't have anybody to turn to about your analysis and ask them for help. So uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, gets to work on like a really wide variety of projects. Like we make hardware. So that's a whole new kind of area for me. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm working on right now. I'm still doing sports consulting on the side. Um, kind of blog infrequently. It's been a little less frequently this year because I've been, uh, kind of insanely busy. Uh, that that's pretty much it. So, so um, we've talked um, a couple talked times a couple about, about the data people, the data working, people working with engineering, engineering people. people. Yeah. So what are so some what lessons, are some lessons learned, learned in terms, in terms of, of how somebody can come from the database background? Better better the software engineers. For sure. Uh, I would say the biggest eye opener for me ever that continues to this day about working with engineers is how different data people's assumptions are than software people's assumptions are. So you might think like, here's a good example. Like, let's say you're you're building something that outputs a prediction, and uh, there's a possibility that you have not written your code such that it deals with missing data very well or something like that. Now, the engineers might be like, okay, we'll just fill in zero there. Or, 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 you know, it might not be zero, but it would be some other assumption. Like, oh, we'll just leave it out for that particular observation or something. And for me, I'm like, what? You can't just put in zero there? That's like, you know, zero <laughs> is not the same thing as missing. Zero is like a valid value on this on this variable. It's very bad. That, you know, it doesn't, it has different meanings. But like, so I think working, the key between the, those two teams working together is like, really stating your assumptions up front and like communicating a lot. So like if say you wrote something that another engineer is implementing or something like that, like talking about it a lot and say like, okay, well, why are you doing this here? And like, I think making the effort to like read their code, even if you don't know the programming language, just kind of like find the part of the code that is like, oh, here's the algorithm that I, that we're concerned with. And I can like read through this and maybe ask the other person to comment what they're doing. And so we can agree upon what's actually happening here, right? So everybody reads things differently and engineers are oftentimes very smart and have had a lot of math, but maybe they haven't had any statistics or machine learning. So like, you know, they're not, they're not used to thinking that way. So they're used to making sure that the website doesn't crash or something rather than uh, thinking that the model puts out the right output. So they'll spend a lot of time thinking about like extreme corner cases that you've never even given any thought to. And I remember like some of those early conversations, I'm like, well, how would anyone do that? You know? And the engineer's like, because people will do anything. Yeah, like you put a user in front of a website and like they will do like the weirdest thing that you can possibly imagine. And it may not even be the user. It may be like it dropped a column of data or something when it's stored in. So now like someone's name is their age. So like, you know, thinking about these things are what engineers are paid to do. Uh, but a lot of data people realize that, I think, uh, right off the top of their head. So that's important. The other thing is, I think, try and meet halfway, right? I, uh, I try to become a better programmer so that I can work more efficiently with engineers. Like, I put a lot of effort and time and thought and how I might do that. Uh, and so for me, that was, it gave me, I think, a lot more credibility when I was talking to engineers because they knew I wasn't just going to drop garbage code on them and, like, or I was getting better about not dropping garbage code on them that they had to implement. Uh, and so then, you know, they would like, I think that gave me, it became easier then to convince them that I knew what I was talking about on my end of the, of, of the table as well. Okay, great. So, so I think this I has think been this a really been a informative interview. And I like that you're kind of have jumped from industry to industry. I mean, you've gone from social yeah. science and academia and methodology to, you know, retail to sports to now with food. 
Oh, by the way, have you bought a sous vide yourself? <laughs> yes, uh, I have. Yeah, so I love to cook sous vide. I, I highly recommend it if you've never done it. Um, so you can actually, there's like, of course, because it's hardware and cooking, there are tons of geeks out there who have hacked out ways to like do sous vide in beer coolers and things like that. So even if you don't want to buy the hardware right off the bat, uh, you will never have a more perfectly cooked steak than a steak cooked sous vide. Uh, so I think it's super interesting. Uh, yeah, I love the intersection of technology and food. That's awesome. So um, I think as a lot of data scientists are, you seem to just be a tinkerer and you want to try and experiment with everything. So for other people that are like that, but that are earlier in their careers, you know, maybe they have a background on the data side or maybe a background on the programming side or maybe a background on the social side. Um, how do you bring that all together and turn it into a career? You know, what advice do you have for people that are just starting out? Totally. Yeah. That is such a hard question because I feel like a lot of the answers that I want to give I also see why it's not a good answer to give necessarily. So like, you know, the, the, the common answer is like, oh, well pick a side project that you really like working on and like build that and establish a GitHub presence. But it's like, I also know that like people have lives and people have kids and people like, you know, they can't work every night and weekend on there, or maybe they just don't want to, you don't even have to have an excuse, right? Like you maybe just want to have your own personal life outside of, outside of work. Um, but I do think that like tackling a problem that you can solve by teaching yourself something and maybe it's building a toy example but then you just get to like you know hello world and then you scaffold on that later and you make it more complicated the next time around or then you add some functionality to it like i know so many people like sports is a really good example of this because i know so many sports hobbyists who started by doing some pivot tables in excel and posting screenshots of those like on their blog or something and they're like oh well, what if i could do this live during games. So then they learned like how to scrape data from places and what it takes to, you know, have a live data feed update on your web page or something like that. So how to build web applications. Like, oh, what if I can make it interactive? And so then they learn a little bit about JavaScript, you know, so like it doesn't have to be fully formed the first day. It doesn't have to hit all the skills. Like it can be something that like, just like software can be extensible, right? Like you can add on things later and, and teach yourself things that way. I think another good thing to do is like volunteer your time. If, if you don't know what you want to work on, volunteer your time, like find, there are tons of organizations out there that like need computer help that can't pay anyone or whatever. There are like organizations like data kind that do kind of like hackathons for social good and things like that. So like, and those, those places are interesting because it's a, a mix of people who are both highly skilled that kind of want to volunteer their time and people who are getting started. So it's a good opportunity to meet people uh, who know what they're doing. And it's kind of low stakes, right? Because it's not like your full-time job. It's for anything that you give them is kind of gravy because they, they don't have anybody who can do this in-house. So you're helping just by being there. And like, so maybe it's just like sitting around watching other people work on problems and how they approach problems. I mean, these are all things like I don't recommend necessarily – like I have mixed feelings about boot camps and things like that. Uh, I think that there are better intensive programs than others. Like Insight is a really good one, uh, but but they like typically require that you have a PhD to to participate. Um, and I've seen people that are amazing come out of boot camps. So it's, it's actually not the. I think there's a selection process there. Like like I just I don't have enough data to know if those are going to produce lots of great data scientists or not. Um, I think, yeah, there's just so much conflicting advice. I don't know. Um, but Do just finding a problem, kind of working on it, and yeah. Do you think when you're hiring, so you've, I'm sure you've had some experience saying you've had teams working for you and stuff with being yeah. on the other end of the hiring desk. Um, do people seem to understand that those skills and those learning abilities are transferable? And, you know, how do you communicate that? That even though, um, you know, somebody only did a project in sports analytics or only in yeah. Arabic natural language processing, <laughs> <laughs> that those, those skills really are um, transferable and you show that you could learn it in a short amount of time. 
Totally. I think people absolutely recognize that, but it's conditioned on you being able to present that, that you're not the world's foremost specialist in Arabic natural language processing that wants to only work in Arabic natural language processing. You know, I think that I've definitely been in the room where we've been reviewing resumes and someone's like, well, I think they're too specialized or like, you know, well, it doesn't seem like they've ever worked on anything but X, Y, or Z. So how you present that is, is pretty important. Right. So, and I think something that a lot of people don't realize, like it's okay to have resumes, not just resume, right? Like it's okay like to tailor your resume to highlight the things that are relevant for the job that you're applying to. And that's more time consuming, but I think it pays off, uh, you know, like a product manager resume would look very different from a data science resume, but there are plenty of people who could be a product manager or a data scientist, you know? Uh, so identifying that and just like when you're giving a speech or like anything like that, like knowing your audience and pitching, pitching your audience is, is super important. Uh, it really can't be like a good cover letter. Also, you really can't, you really can't overvalue a good cover letter that weaves together like the crazy narrative of like, doesn't just restate like, Oh, and then from 2010 to 2012, I did this. Like it really tells why you like worked in all these different areas and like how that actually made you a stronger candidate. And it means that like you're able to tackle things quickly and like, you know, just roll your sleeves up and work in any field. Like that's super valuable, but you have to be able to communicate it. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think you've communicated that well today. And I think a lot of people listening are going to gain a lot from all your advice. So thank you, Trey. Thanks, Trey. Appreciate it. Thanks to Trey for that great interview. I know I learned a lot. And I can't believe I got through that whole interview, even when talking about football, without mentioning that one time back in 2010 when my school, James Madison University, beat his school, Virginia Tech, in football. In Blacksburg. <laughs> oh, whoops, I guess I just did. <laughs> I don't think the Vegas line would have predicted that one. Well, anyway, I hope you learned a lot from Trey, and I hope you find and follow him online. You could find Trey's blog and links to his social media and GitHub's account at treycausey.com. That's T-R-E-Y-C-A-U-S-E-Y.com. Now let's talk about the Data Science Learning Club activity. We're going to learn about web scraping and APIs this week. Web scraping is a method of using the structure of a website in order to extract data from it. Some websites have rules against scraping their data in their terms of service, so you may want to check that before proceeding. There are tools that scrape websites to extract the data, or you can write code to parse the site's hypertext markup language or document object model. APIs are perhaps a more legitimate and less hacky way to extract data because a site has to make the data accessible to you. They will often issue keys to allow and track your access, and API stands for Application Programming Interface. It's often a library that exposes certain functions to API consumers, so you can write code that requests data from a server, and it will be sent back to you in a certain format. A good API will have good documentation to explain how to use it and what to expect. So let's see if we can use web scraping or an API to gather up a cool data set for use in a future learning activity. You can check out more information and references to learn about web scraping and APIs on becomingadatascientist.com slash learning club. And don't forget that the Becoming a Data Scientist Data Science Learning Club is now sponsored by DataCamp, and they have given you, the Learning Club members, a generous discount off your first month of membership to DataCamp. I especially encourage those of you that are, in, that are new to programming to check out their R and Python courses. First, sign up for the Data Science Learning Club, 
at becomingadatascientist.com slash learning club. And when you're logged in, you'll see a forum that includes an explanation of the discount and a sign-up link. You can check out DataCamp's free content at datacamp.com and be sure to go back to the Learning Club and get the coupon before signing up for a paid membership so you get the benefit of the generous discount off your first month of DataCamp. This is Renee Teat. You can follow me on Twitter at BecomingDataSci or check out my blog, which also includes show notes for this podcast at becomingadatascientist.com. If you like this podcast, please rate it on your podcast app or on Data Sci Guide, my data science learning directory website. You can also find other great podcasts and learning resources there. That's datasciguide.com. See you online.